So I have had the opportunity to travel throughout the United States uh, quite extensively in a car. I don't know if you have had uh, an opportunity to drive throughout the United States. There's only a couple of states I haven't had an opportunity to be in, um, but I love a road trip. Road trips are fun to me. Uh, I enjoy the journey. I enjoy being in the car with people. And uh, all my years of traveling, I have learned that there are two types of people. There are those people that enjoy the road trip, and then there are those people that want to know, when are we going to get there? <laughs> and if you're not sure which one you're at, uh, which one you are, you just turn to the person next to you and you can ask them, ask somebody next to you, am I a road trip person or am I a, when are we going to get there person? The book of Revelation is a road trip. And so if you are a, when are we going to get there kind of person, I just want to encourage you, you know, to stick with us through this series. Um, it is going to be um, eye-opening for you. I hope it's encouraging for you. I hope you learn about God's Word as we go through this series. That's what this is about, right? That's what our responsibility is, to preach and teach the Word so that people can apply it to their lives. And so this is a road trip that we're going on. You know, we finished up a series on Leviticus, and we looked at the Old Testament law and how that is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we just finished that series up, and we celebrated the pinnacle of that experience through Jesus' death and through his resurrection this past Easter. And it was so encouraging to be with you. It was really a great service. And so I'm so grateful for those of you that were able to be with us in person or online. We had a fantastic time uh, on our Good Friday service and Easter. It was just really encouraging to be able to have a sense of the power and presence of God. As we finished up with that series, as we moved through Easter, we wanted to spend a little bit of time thinking about, well, what were Jesus's last words to us? We're going to look at those last words. They were given to him through his father, you know, that spoke to an angel through the apostle John. And so we're going to look at Jesus's last, last words to us uh, from the book of Revelation. And it's important that we spend a little bit of time setting up some ground rules, some, some things that are really important for us to consider as we move into this book. First of all, it's the book of Revelation. It's singular. There's one revelation that God gave Jesus that spoke to us. Jesus has words for us. It is a revelation. And so it's not a series of revelations. It's a revelation. And so there's something for us to learn in this revelation uh, from Jesus. And so we want to understand what that is. And that's what we're going to unpack through this series. When you think about the word revelation, it comes from the word apocalypsis. And that's where we get our English word, apocalypse. And what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you think about Revelation or the apocalypse? What's the first thing? Maybe two words. End times. (laughs) Christ, that's a good one. You know, most people think about end times. They think about Revelation as about being a book that's telling us when's Christ going to return, what's it going to look like, how. And so most people think about Revelation from the perspective of end times. But that's not the proper way that we should think about the book. In fact, this morning I was talking to two of our uh, grill. We have some grill masters at Springbrook. They love to grill. They grill at our, uh, our, our Springbrook picnic every year. We haven't had one of those in a while. But it's funny. It's kind of like grilling because, you know, if you keep opening the lid, if you're, if you're looking, it's not cooking. And so <laughs> grilling is a process. And so it's okay to peek on it every once in a while, but your focus is not on the meat. It's the process of cooking, and that's what Revelation is. It's about, a, it's about taking a road trip. It's about the journey from point A to point B. And so many people are consumed with the point B that they forget about the journey. They just want to know, when are we going to get there? Revelation is a book about our journey. 
The word revelation comes from a, a word that's translated, which means it means to uncover. It means to look into. It means to unveil. And it's a process of unveiling what God's Word has for it, for us. It's not a ta-da! It's an unveiling. It's a process. God has things for us to learn. We have things that we need to be concerned about with regard to the end times, but our biggest concern needs to be what does God have for us right now in this book? And that's where our focus needs to be. The book of Revelation is about the sovereignty of God. It's about God being in control, about all things being subject to him. Revelation was written to encourage you and me in our faith in this present time. And so we need to be focused on what God has for us now. And so something else to consider is, you know, what kind of book is Revelation as it's been written? You know, as you read through Scripture, there's different types of genre. There's different types of uh, literature that you're reading. It's a collection of books. It does not read like a normal book that you would pick up. And within the Bible, there's, there's, there's letters, that are, there's, there's books that have been written as a letter. You know, they're actual letters that Paul wrote to churches. Sometimes they're narrative or they give us a sense of history. There's poetry in there. There's history. There's parables in there. And so it's really important that you understand what type of writing that you're reading. And, and Revelation is a prophetic book. It's apocalyptic, which means that it has special use for how it uses words and images and numbers and those kind of things. And so there's something special about the book and the way it was written, especially when you start thinking about numbers and images. Numbers take on meaning. Numbers have meaning. You know, when you think about the number three, there's a sense of holiness about it. There's one God existing as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the number three is reflective of holiness, and you might see that in the Trinity. And you've got some numbers that take on other meanings. They're important from a biblical perspective. You know, God rested on the seventh day. There's something about the number seven. There's seven churches. And so when you're reading through Scripture, there's something to pay attention to with regard to numbers. You know, the number 12 takes on priestliness of, of Scripture. And so we've got, we've got 12 tribes. We have 12 apostles. And so there's something about the number 12 that takes on special meaning. And then the number one, the number one is a unique number. There are no other numbers that are divisible by themselves. The number one is the only number that is not divisible by anything else. It's very unique. It's complete. It needs nothing else. And so the number one takes on a sense of completeness. And the number 1,000 takes on a sense of, from, with regard to time, complete completeness. And so numbers mean something as you're reading through the book. And so you need to understand what you're reading. When you need to look at these numbers, they have meaning attached to them. And sometimes when you're looking at images, sometimes images are very clear. When you look at Revelation uh, in chapter 1, verse 20, we're going to look at it a little bit. When it says a lampstand, it's pretty clear because it says a lampstand is a church. Hey, great. Thanks for clearing that up. Or it says, you know, it talks about the angels, those, or about the, uh, the uh, um, uh, what is it, the, the, the stars. Those are the angels that are watching over the different churches. And so sometimes when you're reading through Revelation, when you see an image, it actually spells out for you what it is. So it's very literal. And then sometimes there's just implied um, images. You know, when you talk about Jesus being a lamb, Jesus is not a lamb, but he's the lamb of God. And so there's some words that take on meaning as revealed to other parts of Scripture. So we have to look at all of Scripture with regard to how to interpret various passages. And so there's implied language. There's very clear language. And then within language itself, there's figurative and there's literal types of language. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about the word of God being sharper than a double-edged sword, able to cut to the marrow. 
And so the word of God is sharp like a double-edged sword. And so when you're reading through Revelation chapter 19, it talks about Jesus having a sword hanging out of his mouth. He's not talking about somebody walking around with a sword hanging out of his mouth. He's talking about Jesus being able to speak with clarity and wisdom like the word of God, which is a double-edged sword. And so when you're looking through imagery, you need to understand, is this figurative or is this literal? You know, when Jesus uh, was with the disciples, Peter says to him at one point, he says, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven? Thinking that's a big number. And Jesus said, no, not seven. I tell you seven times 70. So there's some, there's some, there's some figurative language in that. Jesus is not saying, hey, you need to forgive your brother 490 times, and if he messes up on 491, then you can get him. And so there's not anybody that thinks they have to forgive somebody 490 times. And so that's a figurative type of speech. It means a lot. It means don't stop. There's nothing about 490 that's magical. It's figurative language to indicate that a lot of time needs to be spent. And then sometimes Jesus is very literal. And so when Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that's literal. There's, there's nothing figurative about that. It's a statement of fact. No one gets to the Father except through me. And so sometimes when you're reading, it's something that you take literally. Sometimes it's figurative. And so you have to have a handle on what you're reading as you read through Revelation. You know, one of the biggest theological tensions in Revelation is the issue of already not yet. Already not yet. If I gave you a check for $1,000 or a check for $10,000, I've given you a check. Do you have that money yet? Not until you cash it. You've already got the money, but there's still, it's not complete until you cash it. And so this tension of already not yet is something that we live in when we're looking at different passages of scripture. You know, in, uh, uh, when we looked at Luke this past Good Friday, we talked about Jesus eating the Passover supper with his disciples. He's eating the Passover with his disciples. And he says to them, I will not eat the Passover until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. How can you be eating the Passover and not eat of the Passover until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God? That's an already, not yet. In other words, I'm not going to eat the fullness of this Passover, that future Passover, until the kingdom of God has been fulfilled. I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so the kingdom of God is future, but it is also very much in our present. In Matthew 4, 17, Matthew says this about Jesus in in, uh, chapter 3, talking about Jesus coming as the ushering in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says in in 4, 17, you need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the kingdom of God is a future event, but it's also something that is at hand. In 10.9, Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke 17, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so the kingdom of God is a future event, but it is also a very present reality. You know, we live in the tension of already, not yet. And that's something that we have to deal with as we move into the book of Revelation. The tension plays itself out in several areas, especially in this book. You know, Romans 8.13 says that we have been adopted. We're children of God. We're a part of his family. We have been adopted. We experience that today. But in Romans 8.23, it says we groan as we wait for the fullness of that adoption to be realized. And so we're adopted, but we're also groaning as we wait for the fullness of the adoption to be realized. 
Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so salvation is something that you can experience now. But you know when you're really going to realize that is when you're standing before God. You know, we have salvation now, but it's going to not be realized in, in its fullest until we stand before him. You know, Jesus saved us from our sin, but we're not really fully saved yet. We haven't experienced that salvation. And so when we're reading through Revelation, already not yet as a theological tension that comes to bear in almost everything that you're reading. We've got different styles. We've got numbers. We've got images. We've got languages. We have theological tension. And there's another consideration that you have to be aware of when you read through Revelation, and that's history. You know, what was going on at the time when these things were written? How did the author at that time understand history, what was going on at the time when he was writing it? And that very much comes to bear in our understanding of Revelation. There was 54 emperors over the Roman Empire from 30 AD to 3011. 54 and some of the most significant I've listed here, there's five of them. Augustus, you might have heard, uh, he was there uh, when Jesus was born. He was the one that um, instituted the census that had Mary and Joseph uh, move from, uh, uh, into Galilee for the census. And so you've heard of Augustus. Tiberius, he was the emperor that Pilate reported to when Jesus actually came before him before judgment. And so these two emperors had some impact on our history. Claudius was the one that picked up um, not soon after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Claudius uh, was the one that when the Jews um, started gaining strength, they were disrupting the peace. Claudius was the one that put out the edicts. He drove all the Jews out of the city. He wanted them out of there. They were causing too much trouble. And so we start to see Christian persecution begin with with Claudius as he starts to push the early Jewish Christians out of the the city and the villages. Nero was the one that took over um, when Claudius was killed. And Nero by far was one of the worst. Um, Nero was the one that would have had the most impact on the disciples and on the church in that age. In fact, in fact, he was his mom um, actually uh, had Claudius killed, and so Nero's, Nero, Nero moved into the imperial role because his mom had Claudius killed because she wanted her son to get in there as quickly as possible. <laughs> so, and then Nero ends up turning out that he has his mom killed. He, he has his mom stabbed to death, and then he has, he has his wife beheaded. I mean, Nero is really. <laughs> Nero, Nero is really a bad ruler. He's a bad emperor. And I would encourage you, um, if you've got to, you know, get on the internet, do your own search. I would encourage you to look up Nero. There, there are things about his life and about his leadership that are really um, almost unmentionable uh, that I'd be comfortable, I'd be uncomfortable sharing. You know, he, he did some things to Christians that were just unspeakable. He had them put to death. He had, he had them crucified. He had them burned. Um, he used them to light up. I mean, he, he, he was really persecuting Christians and the church from this time period. And so, and, you know, all of the disciples, except for John, when we get to the book of Revelation, have been killed. They've been martyred. I mean, during this reign of Nero and Domitian, the, Christianity, it should have been wiped out. I mean, they were really persecuting going after Christians. Domitian was so mean. He used to, if you look him up, you know, he was known for being, he liked to sit around and pull the wings off of flies and watch them suffer. I mean, Domitian was really a terror. In fact, um, the historian Pliny, um, there's a, we have a lot of extemporaneous writings. It's not just the Bible that we can go to. We've got Josephus. Um, Pliny was a, uh, a historian at the time. And he actually writes about Domitian. And he calls Domitian the beast from hell. 
And so when you're reading through Revelation, understanding that these were the guys that were ruling at that time, when you talk about the beast, there are some when they're reading through Revelation will actually attach that imagery to specific people in time. And so when you're reading through Revelation and you're reading about the beasts and the, and the seals, and a lot of that comes from what's happening to them is they're being persecuted in that time. You know, so you need to understand history has an important part in our understanding what's happening in the book of Revelation. Christians were being brutally killed back then. But you know what? Christians today, guess what? They are being brutally killed today as well in a way that we just can't comprehend and understand in the United States. On our last trip to uh, India, uh, Eric Runk and I, Eric's one of our elders, we had an opportunity to go and visit some of our um, Timothy Initiative church plants. In fact, David Nelms is going to be visiting with us um, during this series. He's going to be here on May 15th. We're going to get to hear uh, from him a little bit. But when we were visiting these little home churches you know, spread throughout the country, we showed up to this one home church, and there was a woman sharing her testimony. When she became a Christ follower, her husband came at her with a machete and was trying to kill her, and she got out of the house, and she left her family. She left everything behind. She had nothing when she became a Christ follower. And her whole, her whole village was trying to kill her. Her husband was coming at her with a machete. And so when she showed up to this part of the village, she got way away from their village. And so she's in a new village. She knows nobody. She stumbled into a church that welcomed her. And she got to hear about the good news about Christ, and she became a part of their church family. And so when you listen to her tell her story about how she became a Christ follower, she was interested in becoming a Christ follower. Her husband wanted to kill her, and then she left to save her life. I mean, persecution is a real thing. We're not experiencing that now. And so we are reading the book of Revelation through Western eyes. We are reading the book of Revelation through the eyes of people that live in the suburbs. And when you get out around the world, it looks completely different. And so you need to be aware of what's happening around us, not just in our area, but globally. That impacts how we understand Revelation. You know, in the last 10 years, from the year 2010 to 2020, it's estimated that almost 1 million Christians have been killed for their faith. The persecution that we are experiencing today has not gone away. It's still there. You know what? When I look around at our culture, what things that are happening, the slippery slope that we're on, it's really easy to see how quickly things can go down the slippery slope. I was looking at the Voice of the Martyrs. It has all kinds of information about persecuted Christians. Great resource for you. I was on the line last week, and this came up. It popped up on my screen. There's a, uh, there's a, uh, a Brooklyn art studio that uh, has developed and started selling what's called Satan shoes. And they, uh, their shoes are made. They contain the blood of the employees um, donated uh, to put into the shoe. They've got, they've got the uh, uh, Antichrist symbol on there. They've got the cross upside down. They're, I mean, these shoes, and they made, you know, 666 pairs, sold out. And you can't get them right now. So Nike is trying to sue them, trying to get that off the market. I mean, and, and right here on the bottom of the shoe here, it's Luke 10:18, and I saw Satan fall from the sky like a star. And they're celebrating the fact that, hey, Satan's alive and well. Does that bother you? That there, our culture is that comfortable with something that evil. And I took a, went to take a survey on something the other day, and I was like, I wanted to know where I was a guy or gal. I'm used to male and female. And then it started asking me about non-binary. I was like, what's non-binary? I mean, we're to the point now in our culture where you get to pick your gender. 
And there's, I mean, and when you look at what's going on around us, when you look at what's happening, and in a, in a, part of it was that we, we support informed choices as a part of our ministry. And I got a note from them, a, from a woman that had made a decision to keep her baby that chose not to do an abortion. In the context of that, when you look at how many abortions are happening in this country, when you look at the lack of respect for life, when you look at the lack of respect for authority, and not just with communities, with law enforcement, but with kids, with families. When you look at how people respond to the God's authority over them, we just shun away from authority. We want nothing to do with having to submit to anything around us. And then you throw on top of that, we're going to lock you in your house for a year, and we're going to give you a pandemic. Sometimes I look around, and I feel like I'm sitting on a powder keg that's about ready to explode. Don't you? I can't think of a better time for us to look at the book of Revelation and to be encouraged about where God has us right now. LifeWay did a survey. These are pastors, by the way, asking them at what point do they think Jesus is going to return. 56% of pastors. These are pastors. What are you guys thinking? Expect Jesus to return in their lifetime. And so that's what's kind of motivating the church today. There's a sense that, hey, Jesus is coming. This is getting bad. It's coming. And then you've got 20% of the people that say Jesus is not coming. Both of those answers are wrong. (laughs) You can't say whether he's coming. You can't say whether he's not. He could come while we're standing right here. Praise God. Jesus could come at any time. So the correct answer is I'm not sure. We don't know when Jesus is going to come. But what's motivating the church right now, what's motivating our thinking is is this whole focus on the end. And as a result of focusing on missing, on the end, we're missing out on what God has for us today. And that's what we're going to focus on. As we look at chapter 1 today, it's focusing on what God has for us today. I want to make a quick recommendation. N.T. Wright published a book called God and the Pandemic. It's a great read. I wish I had found that um, six, seven months ago. It'll kind of help you to understand where God is at work in the midst of our trials and tribulations. But here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what's going on in our life. God is our refuge and our strength and our present help in times of trouble. And that's where we need to turn. God has something for us today. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're to put on the full armor of God that protects us for the battle. Put on that full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we, are, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do because we feel the tension of that. But the reality is, is that's not where our ultimate focus needs to be. Because we all struggle from day to day, but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is where we need to focus. This, is, this takes us right into the book of Revelation. If you want to know what that tension looks like between the already and not yet, if you want to focus on what God has for you in the midst of this, the book of Revelation has timeless truths and principles for us to be able to look at. Everybody's consumed about when he's going to return. That's what the early disciples, everybody's asking Jesus when I'm going to return. No one knows, not even the angel of heaven or the son, only the father. And so we need to stop being so pre-consumed with end times that we miss out what God has for us today. That's where our focus needs to turn to, and that's what this series is about and I'm telling you, I'm just going to reinforce this point. I'm going to say this. I'm going to keep saying this because as soon as we walk out the door, we start thinking about the end times again. That's just how we've been conditioned. You know, <laughs> when Jesus first was resurrected, 
there's documentation, 11 documented accounts of where people thought Jesus was going to return. From 1,000 to 1,500, seven documented cases predicting Jesus' return. 1,500, 13. 1,600, 18. 1,700 to 1,800, 12. 1890, 1907. From 1990 to 2000, there are 75 documented accounts expecting Jesus to return. And that's almost all of that is towards the year 2000 when we got to the millennium. Right now, there are 27 documented accounts expecting Jesus to return. Mike Bickle is the founder of the International House of Prayer. It's a movement that comes out of Kansas City. He's got a new theology of, uh, he's developed, and uh, he is teaching our young adults, our kids today, about the importance of prayer. Amen about the importance of sharing their faith in Christ. Amen. But he's doing that to mobilize them because he's teaching them that Jesus is going to return in this generation by this date. And that's what's motivating that ministry. And as excited as I am about our young adults praying and talking about Jesus and reading the Bible, their motivation is to bring about and usher in the return of Christ. That's not biblical. And there's waves of theology that are creeping into our churches, and we've got to step back, and we've got to stop that. The book of Revelation is designed to encourage us in our times of trouble. And Revelation 1 opens up with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus's, it's his revelation. It's his unveiling that he has for us, which his father gave him to show us. And so this is Jesus's message to us that he got from his father. He made known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. And so revelation is God's word to us. It's Jesus's word through us. It's given to us from John who got it from the angels. And so there's a hierarchy here of this message, but the bottom line is Jesus has something for us today that we find in chapter one. If you brought a Bible with you, if you're watching online, you can read along with me. Uh, I want to read through chapter 1. And uh, if you're watching online, there's a little Bible uh, app down at the bottom. You can click Bible and type in Revelation. It pops up. You can read along with me. Uh, But listen to uh, Revelation as we read this together. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace to him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, our Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him will see him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Christ was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, what you see in a book and set, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, 
So John had to write this seven times. He had to send one to each of the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergam, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands. One like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining sun in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. And I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that, are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, those seven stars are the angels, and the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so that brings us to the end of Revelation chapter 1. It's the introduction to the book. And those underlying principles are important for us to understand as we think about the implications of what this book means. We are focused on the end times in general when we talk about the book of Revelation. And I want to stop back and I want to, I want to look at today what this book means for us on Sunday, April the 11th. This book is as relevant to you today, if not more so, than it is helping us to understand Christ's second coming. There are things that God has for us today. The first thing that we see from this passage is that God wants us to be able to experience blessing as we read this book. In verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words. It is such a blessing for me to be able to read these words to you. It's a blessing for me, and I hope it's a blessing for you as you hear them, that you're encouraged, that you grow in your faith. There's blessing that comes about just from reading Revelation. It's a blessing that inspires us. It reminds us that God's in control. It gives us hope. It encourages us in our faith. It refocuses us on our priorities. It sets things straight. The first truth that comes from Revelation is that it is relevant for us today and that we can experience blessings today. The second thing that we can experience is grace and peace. In verse 4, John says to the seven churches, he extends to them grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. We get to experience grace and peace from the book of Revelation today. You know, it would be so easy for us to be able to look for grace in all wrong places. Grace is when we get something that's unexpected. It would be easy for us to to look at our stimulus checks and go, oh, praise God, thank you. I didn't expect that. You know, when you think about your stimulus checks, some people feel like it was owed to them. I owed that. I was talking to some, I haven't got mine yet. It was like, well, what do you mean gotten yours? You know? Some people feel like it's owed. For some people, they get it and like, wow, this is a gift from God. <laughs> and sometimes that's what it feels like, right? That's cheapening grace because what happens when the money's gone? Did grace run out? God's grace 
has no expiration. It's everlasting. And it impacts eternity. It's for, by grace that we've been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift that we've been given. And when we read through Revelation, we experience the blessing of grace and peace. In this world, we're going to have trials and tribulations. Where does your peace come from? It comes from knowing that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God has something for us. Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have trials and tribulations. You're going to have problems, but in me, take heart, you'll find your peace. We get to experience blessing. We get to experience grace and peace. And you know what else we get to experience is forgiveness. That is something that we get to experience. We get to experience forgiveness. We see that right there in verse 6. To him who loves us and has what? Freed us. Freed us from our sins. We have been freed. We are no longer a slave to sin. We have been set free because of who we are in Christ. (laughs) Have you experienced that? When we experience the fullness and come to understand the fullness of God's forgiveness, it is a gift. And when we read through Revelation, we are reminded that he has freed us from our sin. And that's something that we can experience today. And not only do we get to experience forgiveness, but now we're, we're part of his kingdom. We get, we've experienced his forgiveness and we've been made a kingdom. We're a part of a body of Christ. We're a part of a fellowship of believers. You are a part of something that is bigger than yourself. When we enter into a relationship with Christ, it's a personal decision, but guess what? You are a part of something bigger. You are a part of the kingdom of God that is playing itself out today. The kingdom of God is near, and guess what? Praise God, you're a part of it. As we anticipate that coming kingdom. You're a part of something bigger. You've you've been included in the kingdom, and that is good news for us today. And guess what else? You've been made a priest. I have been freed. I'm a part of a kingdom. I'm a priest to God his Father. You know, I grew up in an environment where that was sacrilege. You can't call yourself a priest. Well, that's not what the Bible says. We have one mediator between us and God. We're part of this kingdom, and we are now a part of this royal priesthood. And if you have a relationship with Christ this morning, you have been chosen for a purpose. The priests were to offer up sacrifices. The priests were given spiritual gifts to to serve God. The priests were the ones that proclaimed the praises of him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. You've got a testimony. We are a kingdom of priests, and that is relevant for us today. And we also have the assurance that Christ is going to return. That's great news. You know, verse 7 Behold, he is what? He is coming, and every eye will see him. Jesus Christ is going to return. That is good news, and we get to experience the assurance of our faith today. I was sharing my, uh, when I first became a Christ follower, I was surrounded by, apart from my wife and the few guys I met at church, I was surrounded by people that did not have a relationship with Christ. And I can remember talking to a guy. He went to church, and he was wanting to know what I was doing. He thought I joined a cult, yada, yada. And I said, well, and I started talking about Jesus. And he said, well, you can't. You're not, you're not qualified for that. And I was like, well, I don't know. I was blind now. I see. What do you want me to tell you? I said, I know I'm going to heaven. And he said, how can you say that? I said, well, because the Bible tells me. You don't know. How do you know if you're good enough? <laughs> the Bible says I'm not. We have the assurance that Christ is going to return 
and then we're going to spend eternity with him. That's assurance. That's, that's a gift, and you can experience that today. And you know what else we have? We have endurance through the tribulation. You know, <laughs> the tribulation is, a, is going to be a topic, and we're going to talk about it. But I want you to look at verse 9. I, John, your brother. Notice he didn't, I'm not the apostle. You know, I'm not the disciple. I'm not the one who was just, I'm your brother in Christ. We're in this together. I, your brother, and your what? Your partner in the tribulation. Friends, we are in the tribulation. <laughs> I don't know about you. When I look around, I see it. John was experiencing the tribulation right there in that moment. I, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom of patient endurance that there is in Christ. There's endurance that we get in spite of what's going on around us. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life because of who I am in Christ, because of my focus, because I know God's in control, because I know how the story ends. I can endure in my trials and my tribulations. And you can experience that endurance right now. You know, yeah, I remember at this point, John is the only disciple left. They've all been killed. He's the last one. We had Nero and Domitian. I mean, they're, 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 they're wiping people out. If they, hadn't been, if they hadn't spread around the globe, they might have succeeded. You know, John is sitting here by himself. John has experienced the worst that you can experience then that, you, that you're in. Whatever you think it's going to be like at the end, John's already experienced it. I mean, have you been dropped in oil? Have you had your friends hung upside down? Have you been crucified? I mean, this guy has been through the tribulation. I don't know how bad you think it's going to be, but he had it pretty bad. And he's reminding us that, hey, whatever's going on in your life right now, you, don't, you can endure with the Holy Spirit working in and through you. We get endurance through the, tri- through the tribulations in our life. And you know what? We are never alone. We're never alone. Verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands was the one like the Son of Man. Jesus is in our midst. We're not just sitting around waiting for him to come back. He is here today. We have the Spirit. We have the power of God in our midst. We are never alone. We have a Father that loves us, loves us enough that he sent his Son that is always available to listen to us. I can roll over anytime. Don't have to worry about waking him up. Father, hear my cry. You have a father that is always prepared to listen to you and wants to speak to you through his word. You have Jesus who is our mediator between us and God that is always ready to mediate for you. And you have the Holy Spirit in you available to give you the strength to do these things. And if you are not yet a Christ follower, guess what? You have the Holy Spirit that's external to you that's still there for you. Even if you don't have a relationship with Christ, God wants to draw you into a relationship with himself. Isn't that great? You are never alone, ever. You have a God that loves you, that cares about you, that wants a relationship with you, and he's as far as you want him to be. You're never alone, and you get to experience that today. And you know what else? You can live without fear. There's nothing for you to fear. When John saw him, he fell at his feet as though he was dead. (gasps) He laid his right hand on me and said, don't fear. Don't do it. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. You have nothing to fear. Nothing. There's nothing that 
<laughs> that can be taken from you that you're not going to recover in heaven. You know, when my mom went to be with the Lord, we spent a lot of time talking about Revelation, the end times, and I said, you know, you know, she had a, a form of Lou Gehrig's that was, well, it was, it was something that was difficult for our family to move through with her, but I can remember talking to her in the midst of what she was going through that this is going to pass. That we have the assurances. We have, we, we know that, we know where we're going. We know that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you through this. You're not alone. You have your family with you, God is with you, and you can live without fear. I know so many people that make decisions. I mean, if you've ever been, you know, funerals are an interesting place to have good conversations with people about spiritual things. Everybody wants to know where they're going. There's a sense of fear about where we're going. You don't have to live with that fear. You know where you're going. You're going to be here on this earth 100 years maybe, 110, 120 if you really buckle down and start taking care of yourself. Eternity is a long time. And when we know where we're going and we know this life is temporary, we have nothing to fear. And you can experience that today. You can live without fear today. We know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. Verse 19 says this, Write these things that you have seen and heard, those that are and those that are to take place after this. You know, when we read through Revelation, when we read what's happening here, we know how this story is going to happen. We've got the book of Revelation to tell us, I'm going to come back, you're going to be victorious, and you know where you're going to spend eternity. We know how this story ends. And when you read through Revelation, that should encourage you in your faith. We know how the story ends. There is so much to be encouraged as we read through Revelation. And when we are short-sighted, and when we treat Revelation like a book for the end times only, we miss out on everything that God has for us today. And I want to encourage you through this series to be looking for what God has for you today. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And then down in verse 20, it says this. He says that he worked in Christ who he raised from the dead. He has seated him at the right hand and he has in the heavenly places far above the rule and authority and power and dominion and above every other name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. We have everything that God has for us that we need in this life. And not only that, but more so because we know where we're headed. We know what is to come. Paul prays for us in that. And that's my prayer for us as a church as we move through this series, that we would be able to explore and experience the fullness of what God has for us. And that that would be in awe of that. And that that awe would motivate us, that others would see what we have and want to be drawn to that. You know, God, God's promise to us is to let us approach him with confidence, to have nothing to fear in present times. I'm praying that revelation will be an encouragement to us. In Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you put Christ on. There's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, nor free, there's no male, no female. You're all one in Christ. And if you are one in Christ, then you are what? You are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs of that promise. There's one body of Christ. And we're going to start to unpack the fullness of what this means for us when Christ returns. Because when you look at different theological positions, there's different ideas about that. But the good news is that for us today, we know that we are a part 
of this one body of Christ. And that is something to celebrate. You know, we know who we belong to. We know where we're going. If you find yourself consumed with the return of Christ in the end times, I want to take you to a moment to Matthew 28. These were Jesus' actual last words, not spoken to anybody, but spoken directly to the disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to him. Therefore, you're to go. That's the command. Go, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you when? Always. To the very end of the earth. We have the presence of God right now to accomplish what he has for us today. And when we focus on end times conversations, we are missing out on the blessings that God has for us today. Throughout this series, I'm going to encourage you, if you do not have a relationship with Christ, there's no more important decision that you can make in this life. You're missing out on those blessings. You're missing out on everything that God has for you. If you do not have a relationship with Christ, it's not about the words, but you can ask God into your life to have a relationship with him. And you can begin to experience the blessings that come from knowing you have a relationship with him. You can pray that prayer, and I'm not going to lead you to that today. If you want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ, if you're watching online with us this morning, there should be a little place for you to click that says, hey, I want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ. This sounds good. I don't know why I've been missing this. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you're online, let us know. If you're in person with us this morning on that communication card on the back, there's a place for you to say, hey, I want to know more information about how to have a relationship with Christ. It's important for you to be able to understand the book of Revelation. In fact, you cannot approach Revelation apart from having a relationship with Christ. You need the Holy Spirit in you. You need the wisdom of God to be able to see what he has for you as we go through this series together. That's my prayer for each of you, for our church, that we would be effective at reaching our community for Christ, that we'd be able to make disciples as we anticipate Christ's second coming. He is going to return, but he's got some things for us to focus on while we're here. And that's what this series is going to be about. I hope you'll stay with us. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for this day you've given us today. And I thank you for, just for the good news about Christ, about what's been accomplished for us. And I just pray that through this series that our lives would bring you glory. I pray that we would get a more clear glimpse of what you have for us today. Uh, God, as we live in this tension of already, not yet. God, thank you that I am saved. I know I'm going to be able to experience the fullness of that later. Thank you that I'm a part of your kingdom. I know I'm going to be able to experience that later. We have so much to look forward to. That's what Paul says. It would be better for me to be with you, but I know you've got something for us here. I just pray that you would continue to strengthen us. I pray that you would encourage us in our faith. I look forward to all that you have for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.